So let's read together. John 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each one of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, this, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there's much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take, them, take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Father, would you take this word, and would you teach us from it? Would you reveal the glory of your Son in this word? May, may we see Jesus. May we see the glory of Jesus. And in seeing the glory of Jesus, just like the signs were continually to point people to the glory of Jesus, that they might believe, would you cause these signs, would you cause this word to produce in us faith, to believe you, Lord Jesus, for things that only you can do, to bring about things that only you can bring about, to transform things that only you can transform, to make things happen that only you can make happen. And would you do it by your life-giving presence? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Only Jesus gives life. That's the big idea today. Only Jesus gives life. We know that he gives life because he transforms ordinary things and he does extraordinary things with those things and, tra- and makes them all new. And that's how he, he does it in this passage and that's how he does it with ordinary things like us. Ordinary sinful people who have walked away from God, who have abandoned the image that God has created us in and gone our own way. God looks at us and through Jesus transforms us, changes us, takes ordinary things and miraculously transforms them. That's your story, isn't it? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've come to a faith, a place of trusting Jesus and you've gone public with that in baptism and you're following the Lord, 
it's something extraordinary that's happened to a very ordinary person like you and like me. And today we're going to see really just two things. Jesus shows that he does that to you and to me every day as followers of Jesus. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, he can transform you. He can take an ordinary life and do something very extraordinary with it. And the way that we know that is he does it with two things in the passage, food and water. That's the outline. Food and water. Food, verses 1 through 15, water, 15 through 21. So let's look at what he does with food. Just some markers in the, in the passage. The crowds are following Jesus, 1 through 3. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. John just kind of describing the same body of water that two different audiences might understand a little bit. A large crowd is following Jesus. That's typical of his ministry. Jesus performs a sign and a wonder. He delivers a 38-year-old man who is a paralytic. He tells the man to stand up, get your mat, and walk around. Walk around in front of your family. Walk around in front of your friends with the mat that you've been laying on your whole life. That'll draw a crowd. When he just speaks words and a little boy miles away is raised from death to life, that's on death's doorstep, and a fever escapes and just leaves the boy, just at the very word of Jesus, that'll draw a crowd every single time. When you take water, gallons and gallons and gallons of water, and it transforms into something completely different, wine, as his first sign in the Gospel of John, that'll draw a crowd, and a crowd is following Jesus, a very large crowd, And specifically, it says that a crowd is following him because of the things he was doing on the sick. Jesus was continually healing the sick. Many people were coming to him. He didn't heal everybody, but he was healing many, many people. He would lay his hands on and he would say, be healed. He he has compassion on people. He has compassion on paralytics. He has compassion on many, on the, those who are sick and, and are in need and desperate. So large crowds follow Jesus and, and some of them want to be his disciples and some of them are confused and some of them are rebellious and they just want Jesus to do something and that's not unlike today. Many people are confused. Many people are in rebellion against God and yet they, they kind of follow Jesus but maybe from a distance. Jesus is attracting a crowd and he still attracts crowds today. Well, on this day, Jesus went up on a mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And John wants us to see that there's something happening uh, on the landscape. A celebration is coming, a nationalistic celebration, because he says in verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And if you're a Jew in that day, it's like the 4th of July on steroids. I mean, it's like nationalistic zeal all the way. They've been waiting for a new Moses, a new Joshua to come in, bring the sword, wipe out the government, overthrow the government. And could Jesus do that? At the end of the passage, they're actually going to try to make him king. So he'll be this zealot that will be the new Joshua, overthrow the government. That's kind of what they want to see happen. That's the kind of kingdom that they have in mind, the kingdom that brings a sword and and, and takes out the Roman oppression. And Jesus is preaching another kingdom. He says, I'm going to relieve you of a whole other kind of oppression. A whole other kind of deliverance. Not an earthly oppression, but a spiritual oppression of bondage that's over you and over your life. That's the kind of 
deliverance I'm going to bring to you. Passover is pretty significant. It's the yearly celebration of freedom from slavery. Do you remember the story? The Israelites are trapped in Egypt. They are completely under the bondage of an Egyptian ruler. And God sends Moses to say, let them all go. And they won't let them go. And he sends plague after plague after plague after plague until the 10th plague is death to all their firstborn. Human beings, cattle, everything. And the only way that the death was removed from them, was passed over them, is if you took a perfect lamb, an unblemished lamb, and you slaughtered it. And you took the blood of that lamb and you put it over the doorpost on that night. And you went inside the house and you ate the lamb. That's how you were passed over. That's how deliverance came for the Jews. So it's significant that John's saying, this is the season right here. This is the Passover season. In fact, on the Jewish calendar, it's this week. It's this very week. April 13th, 14th. It would be right now. Well, notice what else happens in verses 5 and 6. Jesus tests his disciples. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. We will see later that says 5,000 people, but everybody thinks, all the commentary guys pretty much are sure that these are heads of households, so there's probably 15,000, 20,000. Surely there's 5,000, could surge upwards to 15 or 20,000 if you were to include women and children. So a large crowd's coming towards Jesus. Jesus says to Philip, one of his disciples now, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He seems to be concerned that they're hungry. And something about Galilee is that they are hungry people. They are poor people. They're agricultural people. And they aren't known for being very wealthy. They are known for poverty. And Jesus asks Philip a question. He says, where are they to buy bread? Where bread's gonna come, where's bread going to come from? Where are, is the hunger going to go away? How are we going to provide bread for them, Philip? And he's not asking because he needs to know, because verse 6 says, he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. In other words, he's specifically asking a question to Philip to test Philip's faith. Where is Philip on the discipleship process? Jesus asks this question for each and every one of us today to test our faith. Where are we in the discipleship process? Well, Philip fails the test. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little bit. In other words, he says, eight months worth of wages would only buy these guys a snack. He quickly does the math because a, a denarii is like a whole day's worth of wage. So he, he says, you know, it, it, at our best, we'd give these guys like a, a crumbful. There's just no, no way that we could ever, ever provide for all of these people. And then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? 
So all of a sudden, this little boy's meal becomes the focus point. We don't know exactly how they got the boy's meal. I, I was raised in Sunday school that the boy shared his, shared this meal. I don't have any confidence that these disciples asked this boy for this meal. I just think they said, give us this meal and we'll show Jesus what we got. Maybe they did, but again, they're disciples and they're strugglers like us. So at any rate, they're like, okay, so here's what we have. We've got five barley loaves and two fish. And so when you see barley loaves, that's actually the poorest kind of food that you could have. These are poor people, meager things that they have. And don't think huge loaves that you would get from Walmart on your way home at 5 o'clock. Think like little scones or little flattened biscuits. Tiny. And the, the fish, don't think big, huge, succulent fish. Just think like garnish. The little preserved pieces of, fr- of fish that you take the fish and you throw it on the scone. And that makes a, a poor boy's meal. That's what happens in the middle of the day. That's all he's got to eat. That's pretty much all they have at this point. And notice what Jesus does. They, they kind of fail the test here. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But the, the general thought from both of them and all the disciples is, what are they for so many? You've got 20,000 people. You've got five loaves, two fish. What's going to happen? And Jesus says in verse 10, have the people sit down. So that's what he makes them do first. Sit down. And you could kind of allude to this great shepherd moment. Psalm 23 says he makes us lay down in green pastures. And we see that there's a lot of grass here. There was much grass in the place. And as a good shepherd, making his people lie down, they're a hungry crowd. They're probably coming to see a show. And now they're, they're kind of here and they need something to eat. Jesus says, sit down. And then, verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. He took the scones. He took the little flattened biscuits. He actually took the boy's meal. This, the insignificant meal. The, the, the meal that was a mockery. It was a jest. You know, Philip and Andrew aren't expecting Jesus to do anything with this. He, they're saying, remember what we said when we brought you the spreadsheet and the budget? Eight months worth of wages wouldn't be able to do it. And here's what we've got. See? See? This is what we have. And Jesus actually takes it. He, he receives it. He, he takes it. And he takes it into his, his hands. His hands took the loaves. And then he gave thanks. He, he took what they had. He took what they, what they gave. He put them in his hands. And he didn't do a miraculous thing over them yet. The first thing he does is he takes what they have and he looks up to God. And he gives thanks. It's all they have. It's all the disciples have. It's all the 20,000 people have. At this day of hunger is this. And Jesus is thanking his Father for them. He, he gives thanks. And then it says he distributed them after he gave thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. And what he did was he broke it and started to give it away. And the disciples were involved in this process. He started to break those scones and break that, that bread and those fish and he starts to give them to the disciples and disciples start to distribute them out to the many thousand people who are, who are seated down and then notice what else happens 
so also the fish, as much as they wanted. As a little boy when I was growing up, I used to think, well, everybody just got a crumb, right? And God did the, the miracle was God filling their appetites with like a little bitty crumb. But that's actually not what happened at all. As much as they wanted, and verse 12 says, when they had eaten their fill, as much as they wanted, they are filled up out on this grass. They're having a wonderful picnic. Lots of fish. Lots of, fruit, of food is happening now. And when they had done that, Jesus says to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. And, and he's concerned about waste. There's a responsibility here. In any kind of meal in the Jewish custom, you, you weren't wasteful. So he's concerned here about waste. doesn't want to see that happen. But there's something he wants to teach the disciples now. He wants to teach the crowd something about his provision and his ability to do things that nobody else can do. But now he wants to teach the disciples something. So, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. That's true of anything that we give into Jesus' hands. Nothing will ever be lost. Verse 13 says, They gathered them up. And filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So the text says, remember, five barley loaves. We start with five barley loaves and two fish. We start with a meal that looks like this. We feed 20,000 people this. And then we end with 12 baskets of this. Each then given to each disciple to show after you've wasted yourself on my call on your life and join me on my mission and, and thought how in the world would we be able to feed these people with our resources and what we have to bring to the table after you've done that, after you've exhausted yourself through me and what I've called you to do and after all that I've sent you to go do, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for you specifically. I'm going to provide for all my disciples. Those 12 baskets representing the whole church. The 12 tribes of Israel that Jesus restores as the new and better Moses and Joshua. The new Messiah who brings together the disciples and says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide. So there's a lot here that we could, we could learn. There's a broad application and even a specific one that that's rooted in. And I think that there's something for us to learn about how we are to approach our providing God as the one who provides life to us. That's really what, what's happening here. I mean, ultimately, if people don't eat, they die. And Jesus is showing us something about his ability to produce something out of nothing. That's what Jesus did in creation. In Genesis 1, he created out of nothing. And that's what he does where there's hunger and he's able to do what we aren't able to do. He's able to create where it's impossible. I think the first thing is that Jesus calls us to compassion for the crowds. That's what happens in verse 5. We don't really know what happens here in John before it, but in other places where this shows up in all four Gospels, the disciples are coming back from a very exhausting mission trip with Jesus. They're tired. Every, every, every account is they are tired. 
And Jesus never tires of looking out at the crowds and having compassion for the crowds. And that's what he does. It says in verse 5, lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd coming towards him. It's not that the disciples didn't see the large crowds, but Jesus could see something beyond just the numbers and the impossibility. He actually looked at the crowds and he felt in him a compassion for them. And I think that when we look at the crowds in front of us that Jesus gives to us, and Jesus has given each one of us a crowd, and it might not be 20,000 people, it might be two. It might be two people. But it's a crowd. And Jesus has put that crowd in front of you. And they aren't far from you geographically, but they could be very far from God. And God's put you there on mission with that crowd. And it might be more than two. It might be 20. It might be 100. But each of us has a crowd. The church has a crowd. The church has four billion people who have never heard the gospel. The church has thousands of people that die every day. Hundreds that will die before I finish this sermon. Jesus calls for us to break. Jesus calls for our hearts to break. I think that's at least one thing that we can learn from this. He, his heart breaks. He looks out over Jerusalem and his heart breaks. When he sees crowds, something moves in him and it's the heart of God. God's put that heart in us and he expects us to be moved with compassion for people. And when we see the people, I think the other thing is that Jesus expects us to believe him for the impossible. That's the question. It's not because he is curious. Philip, do you have a good answer for the solution? Because I'm, I'm trying to work out a strategy. I, can you find out a strategy for here, for, for, for this situation? Can you please, uh, you know, Come back to me with a plan of action of what I'm going to do. He asks because he's testing their faith. Where are we to buy bread, Philip, so that these people may eat? He, he's asking because he wants to test their faith, his faith and the disciples' faith. And three other times in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the very same thing happens. And he asks the disciples, or the disciples say, you know, send the crowds away. They actually approach Jesus in other places, and they're like... Send them away, Jesus. Look at all these people. I mean, they, they're just tired. Tired of people. You ever been tired of people? <laughs> they were tired. Tired of people. Send them away so that they can go get something to eat. That was their, because they're hungry, right? I'm concerned, Jesus, about their hunger, so send them away. I'll, I'll get props with you, Jesus. I'll get you know a, a star on my chart. Because we're concerned about their hunger. Send them away, Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, six words, you give them something to eat. He says, you do it. I'm expecting you to do something. He's not expecting them to draw up a plan of action and then pull their, their meager resources together and say, okay, uh, you know, eight months of, of wages, we'll do it. And so let's make sure that we, we get a lot of wages in here. That, there's a place for that. 
There's a place for careful planning. There's a place for strategic action. But that's not the expectation here in this passage or in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the expectation to believe Jesus for the impossible. To see the impossible crowd in front of you. And we've all got those impossible crowds. And there might be one impossible child, one impossible neighbor, one impossible friend. Or it might be a crowd of those kinds of people. And it looks absolutely impossible. How in the world is, would that ever happen? And, and we're so tempted to look at our resources, right? I, I need to say the right things. I need to do the right things. I need to approach the person the right way. I can't make a mistake. I can't say something dumb or stupid or foolish. I, I got, we look at our resources. We look at our budget. We look at our time. We look at what we've got to bring. And it looks small. I've got a few scones. Scones don't go anywhere with that person. It won't go anywhere with that crowd. It, it, it won't go anywhere with those neighbors. No way. Those neighbors who are far from God. I got garnish. That's all I got. And eight months worth of garnish wouldn't convince those crowds. And Jesus says, stop looking at what you have. Stop looking at what you bring to this. It's not about you. It's not about your resources. It's not about what you have and about what you don't have. Yes, there's a place for strategic planning. Yes, thankfully there are people who are actually counting up those things. Okay, eight months worth of wages is not going to do it. But we don't start that from a place of unbelief. We say, with Jesus, all things are possible to meet this crowd. We start by looking at Jesus. And that's what, that's the rebuke. That's a rebuke to the disciples. They're, they're looking at the crowds and then they're looking at their resources. They're not looking at the crowds and then looking at Jesus and then looking at their resources. They're looking at what? We can't do this. And Jesus is saying, expect me to do something in your life that's impossible. Expect me to do something in your life that is impossible. In Matthew 17, talk about convicting do you remember the story? The disciples fail. That's what it means to be a disciple. You want to be a disciple? Learn to be a failure, okay? Because that's what it means to be a disciple. You're a sinner, okay? And you're going to try to do great things for God, and you're going to fail and fall on your face, and Jesus is going to lift up your face. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to take steps of faith in following Jesus. Well, the disciples fail, and Jesus teaches them from something from the failure. But, but what he says is pretty convicting in Matthew 17. And I brought him to your disciples, this person says, when they are unable to cast out demons from this person. At which, I mean, I've never done that, so I can't imagine, you know, the rebuke here. But listen to this. They couldn't heal him, Jesus. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation. And you read that and you're like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, they tried. They, they tried. Didn't, didn't they try? How long, Jesus says, will I be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. Why does he call them faithless? Why does he call his own disciples twisted? Is because of their twisted, puny 
little faith. I know what it's like to live with that twisted, little, puny faith. And these disciples did too. I know what it's like to look at the little bit and say, God can't do much with that. And Jesus says, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to here, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Not faith in faith, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Not faith in faith. Faith in Jesus. Looking at the power, the might, the majesty, the ability of Jesus and what he can pull off. When my children want something from me, particularly on the way to the Lego store, which they always seem to want something from me on the way to the Lego store, they never ask me if it fits in the budget. Daddy, does it fit in the budget? Can we afford it? I mean, I hope they start to ask that question. But like, that's a sign of maturity, like, please start asking that question so I can steer it off at the, at the pass. But children don't do that. And that's what Jesus says. This father is benevolent. He's generous. He's able. And children don't respond to a father with, with meagerness or, or and puny requests. They go to a father and they say, I don't know what you want to do. I'm leaving that to your sovereignty. But you are able to do something here that's absolutely impossible and mind-blowing and astounding and amazing that we would all sit back and say, yeah, five, five scones and two fish aren't going to feed 20,000 people. We get that. But with you, it's, it's possible. Everything with you, Jesus, is possible. And that's how we're supposed to approach our Father. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. Don't have twisted, puny faith. Trust me for something amazing. And in verse 11, Jesus multiplies whatever they give and he'll multiply whatever we give to him. And he'll thank God for it. He'll thank God for it. You got a gift, you got an ability and it looks puny to you and it looks small. Put it in his hands and he will thank God for that gift. He will not condemn you. He will thank his father for that gift. It will be in his hands and and he will break it and he'll distribute it and he'll multiply it out and he'll give it away as blessings to other people. He'll multiply whatever we give to him. And I think that there's something for us to learn in verse 13. They gather up the baskets of fragments. It it doesn't look the same. It, it, It looked like this and then it was broken And it was distributed and it comes back as these fragments, multiplied in full but different. And I think that that teaches us about the generosity of Jesus, that he's not going to be outdone in our giving. So you you give, you you just, that fear, if if I give all of this or all of me, what's going to happen? Like there's just this vacuous Sacrifice that we're not going to receive anything back. And Jesus says again and again, no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the gospel will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. He's not going to be outdone. You will not outdo his giving. You give anything to him, he's going to multiply it and give something, some form of it back to you. It might not look the same, so it's not like it's not like it's it's taught and, and preached sometimes. But you write a check, and then you're going to get a check. No, 
That's not how, that's not what we're talking about. You, you give to God because you, you are on mission with Him and you want to see the gospel advance and, and you will be multiplied. It's better to give than to receive. And we are always in receiving mode with Jesus. We will never out, outdo Him. And, and, and lastly, I think that there's something even more significant here because in John 6, Jesus is going to teach right after he walks on water. He's going to say, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There's something I think that he's teaching in the breaking and the distributing of the bread. And that is for us that we, like the 20,000 in the crowd, which we are those people, are desperate and hopeless in our sin. We have no hope. It's a symbol of all the world because we've all turned away from God. We've all walked away from God. Your story and my story and these disciples' story are the same. All of us has failed to glorify God with our lives. And we've walked away from God. And Jesus is the poor boy's meal. He's the only hope. Nothing attractive about the meal. Seemingly nothing significant about the meal. But that shouldn't surprise us. In Isaiah 53... Jesus is described as a root out of dry ground. No form or majesty that we should look at him. He looked like a scone to 20,000 hungry people. He was despised and rejected by men, men of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, this meal was not esteemed and it fed 20,000 people. Jesus came, not esteemed, not seemingly significant. And he is broken and his death becomes abundant life to the multitudes and the multitudes and the multitudes. And the way that happens is the grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies. And when it dies, it bears much fruit. And that's what Jesus did for us. That's our story. Two minutes. Water. <laughs> All in a day's work. They try to crown him king because if, if he can do that with food, he can take out the Roman government for sure. So let's make him king. And Jesus, not on, not on their terms, he escapes. The disciples get into a boat. They're going to Capernaum. They go three or four miles out into the sea. They're out there, man, right in the middle. They're not on the shore, kind of just going around the border of the shore. They're in the middle, and it says it was dark in verse 17, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they rode three or four miles, They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. Jesus was walking on the water. 
He's walking on the water. The water is terrifying. Water is wild. Water is water. It's fluid. It's not hard. You're not, you, you can't walk on water. Okay? I've tried to teach my kids this every summer. At the pool. Can't do it. You will sink. You can't walk on water. Uh, Jesus walks on water. He walks out there on the water. And it says, what does it say? Let's see. Look at this. Jesus walks out on the sea, comes near the boat, and they were frightened. The text doesn't say they were frightened because of the rough wind and all that stuff coming. They're not frightened until they see Jesus walking out on the water to them. Why? Because he's God. Only God feeds multitudes with this kind of thing, and only God walks on water. God is walking. God is walking to their boat on the water. Here comes God stepping into their boat, and they're frightened. And the only thing that the text says that allays their fears is he says, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus, mercy, grace, come in, and they're glad. It says they they were glad. Now, historically, um, the church has looked at Psalm 107 as this is kind of a fulfillment of Psalm 107. I just want to read it, and then we're going to take communion together. Psalm 107 describes that some men went out to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. That's a description of all of us. Out at sea, living our lives, doing just doing the best we can with what we've been given. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and he raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. And it talks about how these waves in our lives and in these lives in Psalm 107 mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths and their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. This is the story if you're a disciple of Jesus. You've come to the end of yourself and you've cried to the Lord in your trouble and in your distress. And it says, Then he delivered them from all their distress and he made the storm still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad. That's what the text says in John 6. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Then they thanked the Lord for his steadfast love. Notice the last miracle. They were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There's actually two miracles happening right here. He walks on water And then he delivers the boat safely to shore immediately. Jesus provides life and he protects and preserves life. He protects us. He protects his disciples. He gives life and he'll keep on giving life to us. And that's what we're going to celebrate by taking communion together. Communion is the Lord's Supper. What we celebrate in this as believers. In other words, you've gladly received Jesus into your boat. You... You have recognized him in his lordship and in his godness and you have trusted him and you are trusting him by faith alone. And you either have gone public with that 
through baptism or you're heading that direction and you're, you're wanting to get information about that, you're welcome if that's you. If you're a believer in Jesus and you trust in, in Jesus alone, this is a meal for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we ask that you think a lot about Christ. Think about his promises. Think about who he is. Think about what this text says about him. And we would invite you to become a believer. We would urge you to. We would urge you to. In fact, the scripture urges you to. God urges you to. Become a believer. That means surrender everything to Jesus. Lay your life before his feet and let him give you his life like only he, he can give. So you need, to, you need to come to Jesus by faith alone, not your works. You throw off your works. You throw off your morality that you've been trusting in and you trust in Jesus Christ alone. And you, be, you become a Christian when you do that. You become a Christian and you can gladly receive of the bread and the cup which symbolizes his body and his blood.